morning we're going back to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And Lord willing, we'll be able to finish the chapter today. But we're still in this uh, examples and lessons that Peter's giving us of submission. Remember, chapter 1, the first part of chapter 2, was just a reminder that we are secure in Christ and our salvation. He's redeemed us. He's given us an eternal inheritance. Because of that, He's called us to holiness. And in all of that, with all of that as the foundation, we are then the church of God together. And our goal is to glorify Him, to live for Him, and show Him in whatever we do. And Peter says the way that we do that is through this area of submission in our lives. And he's given us one example so far in chapter 2, starting at verse 13, our submission to the government. And he continues on here in verse 18, where we're going to start today in talking about submission to our workplace authorities. And so we're going to read, starting at verse 18 today, in chapter 2 and down through the end of the chapter. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 18, down through 25. The Bible says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, For what glory is it if when you are buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto ye were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls." Let's take a minute of prayer before we get into our message today. Our Father God in heaven, we just thank you again for the opportunity to look into your word together. We thank you that you've given us your truth that we can learn from and grow from, that we can be convicted by and be challenged by. And Lord, I pray now that as we look into your word, that your spirit would guide us and open our minds and hearts, that he would help us to have understanding and learn application of these truths. Father, we know that this is truth, and so help us to see it just as that. And Lord, I need help today. I need your Spirit, and so fill me with your Spirit. Give me strength of body, of mind, of voice, and I pray that you give me words to speak so that we might hear your truth proclaimed today, that it might go forth with power and challenge and convict us and change lives as your intention is. And so, Lord, do your work now, we pray. And we thank you again for your love in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get to verse 18 here in chapter 2, again, we see a second example here of 
how we are to submit in our lives as believers. And it all falls within this idea uh, that pervades 1 Peter of the submission of a believer to the will of the Lord Jesus Christ and to his, the authority of God the Father, but also those authorities that God has ordained in our lives. And we saw in the middle of chapter 2 that we are supposed to submit to governments, and that command, as we looked at that um, submission to governments, is applicable to all level of government authority, and it's applicable to all people who represent those levels of government authority, and it is applicable even when that government may not be uh, what we would call just and righteous, but also we are to submit to corrupt, to unjust authorities in government. And Peter gave us that example because he was saying this while Nero was the emperor of Rome over Jerusalem and over Israel. And then in, chapter, in verse 15, Peter says, this is God's will for us to submit to our governments so that our testimony in this way will demonstrate a life of who we submit to, obviously the Lord, as our God and as our Father. And he says, when you do this, we will be able to put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Okay? So there's a purpose that God has for our submission in this life on earth. And here in verse 18, Peter continues this idea of submission, and he gives us another example of how we apply this in our lives. So just as we are to be submissive to our earthly civil and government authorities, then Peter says we are to demonstrate that same submission in our work environment, in our what we'll call the relationship we have with our corporate authority. Now, this is obviously not the standard that the world lives by. And if you look at the, the workplace today, the modern workplace, and the what we'll call the employee-employer relationships or the boss and worker relations, this is not, uh, this idea of submission is not demonstrated in that scenario today. In fact, we have prime examples right before us. If you watch the news, there are strikes going on. Workers who are demanding their rights about things that they think they're owed. Um, we have uh, labor unions forcing employers to for better pay, better working conditions, more benefits, safer and better working environments for their workers. Um, and, and while the principal goal of the labor unions was good, it was to provide a better environment for workers and better pay and all of that, the, the, the labor unions as a whole basically have adopted the same entitled mindset that most people have adopted and now are only using that authority and that position to benefit themselves and not even necessarily the people they represent. So we have basically no real example in the world of submission in the workplace that Peter is talking about here. Everybody is striving for their own benefit. They're striving for their own authority to yield that authority to bring good for themselves, and that's it. In the corporate world, the, the model is you see how many people you can walk on to get to the top. And, and that's basically how the world lives today. There are very few 
who live for the benefit of others as Christians are told to. And unfortunately, that is true of many believers as well. It's my, my workplace, my work environment, my job, my occupation are for my benefit alone, and I'm going to do everything I can to get the most out of it. And it doesn't matter if we mistreat those who are over us or those who work alongside of us. And unfortunately, that is completely the wrong attitude, as Peter says here. We are to submit to those who have authority over us in our workplace. And as he gives us this command, we need to understand some of the terminology that he uses. And so as we look at the command in verse 18, he starts by saying servants. That includes us. Now, understanding the context of that command or that term, servants, we need to know and remember that in Peter's day, in the Roman Empire, there were a large number of slaves that were part of the population. In fact, a large part of the population in general would be considered servants or slaves. Many people who were slaves were uh, slaves because they had resisted Rome and were put into slavery after being overtaken by Rome's armies. Others may have been criminals or debtors that because of their crimes or their debt were put into forced slavery, both by the government or by the people they owed money to. And in fact, there were cases of slaves as well who were slaves, but they were able to raise enough money to purchase their freedom and yet had chosen to stay as servants in their master's house. So there's all different variations of slaves, but the fact is there were a large number of slaves or servants in the population or in the society at this point. In fact, even in the church, there was a large number of believers who either had been slaves or were still slaves after they had been saved. In fact, some of the early slaves who had been converted right after Pentecost had grown in their spiritual maturity to the point where even though in the secular world they were still servants or slaves, in the church they were being appointed as elders or deacons. And so they had authority in the church that they did not have outside of the church. And this caused conflict because these slaves, and sometimes you actually had a slave who was an elder or a leader, and their master, who was a later convert, who came in and was not as spiritually mature as them. And so there was this conflict that arose just within the church, especially because these slaves who were saved Well, some of them started claiming freedom in Christ. They didn't want to be slaves anymore. They didn't want to listen to their masters. And so Peter gives this command, servants, obey your masters. There were also slaves who were still slaves who were saved. And in the church, they thought they ought to have freedom. But Peter buckles down and doubles down here, and he says, no, slaves Obey your masters. Submit to your masters. Now, this Greek word servant in verse 18 is different from the word servant we read last time in verse 16. Remember in verse 16, we are told to submit to the government as slaves to God, as free men, but as slaves to God. That word slaves in verse 16 in in our relationship with the Lord is the Greek word doulos. It means slave, bond servant. Someone who has not chosen to be a slave, who has no choice about it, who is there to serve their master, end of story. Okay, that's what that word means. 
in verse 16. In verse 18, when Peter says, servants, obey your masters or be subject to your masters, he uses a different word. The word is oiketes, and it means a fellow resident or a domestic servant. Now, this would be different than a doulos because a doulos is a bond servant, whereas this oiketes is a hired servant in a household. In other words, they're not really under bondage. They're actually just a servant who's being paid for their work, and the word actually means a domestic servant, so it's within a household. Literally, the word translates within a household. Okay, So these are people who have either offered themselves as servants to pay a debt or to earn money, or they've chosen to be a servant, or this is just their work that they serve a rich person within their house doing the different tasks that a servant would do. So we're not talking about someone who has no choice and they are under bondage here when Peter gives this command. He's actually talking about people as well, including those bond servants, but as well who have chosen to work for somebody for a wage. And that's what this, this word represents. We work in someone else's household. Now, the word household in Bible times didn't just include the house. Basically, it included the family, the, the, the patriarch of the house, as well as his family, extended family, and then anyone who worked for him, whether they be a servant as a bond slave or a servant as a hired servant. That was considered the household of that person. And so what we're talking about and what Peter's talking about here when he says servant puts us right into that scenario because all of us, or at least most of us at some time in our lives, have been employed to serve others for pay. And that would be included in this word servant. And so we have this idea of employees hiring, I'm sorry, employers hiring employees. So we could use the word employees here and it would still fit perfectly. Then we go to the masters because it says servants be subject or submit to your masters. The word masters here is an interesting word in the Greek. It's despotes, and it sounds like our word despot or despotism, which we recognize as like a dictatorship, right? An evil dictator who rules over all. And that's actually what the word means, except not evil, just one who rules over, okay? Now, we automatically, because of our history and the way we've been taught, put the negative connotation on this word. And we think, oh, a despot is an evil person. In Scripture, it's not always used that way. In fact, this word, same word, master or despotes, is actually applied to God to talk about his rule over people. We cannot call God an evil dictator in any manner of the word, and so we shouldn't automatically assume that a master then is an evil person in regard to what Peter's saying here, okay? But this basically is a master, someone who hires or has the rule over someone else. We could call it the employer, okay? So as Peter defines different levels of government authority. Remember, he says, as to the king supreme or as to governors who do their will. Okay, that is implied here as well. It's not just the head employer. It is any level of authority under which we would work. So that would include supervisors, managers, etc. So when Peter says, servants obey your masters, he's saying employees 
obey and submit to those people who have authority over you in the workplace, whatever that workplace may be. Now, here's the command. We know who he's talking to and who he's talking about. And the command is to be subject with all fear or to submit with all fear. The word is submission. It's the same command that we have as in regard to our government authorities. We are to respect them. We are to obey them. We are to submit to that authority. And he says, submit to them or be subject to them with all fear. The Greek word for fear is phobos. Now, we think of phobias, things that we're afraid of, right, that cause fear in our lives. And that's the word that fear that, that Peter uses here. But he doesn't say be subject to your masters and fear them. He says, be subject to your masters with all fear. If you go back a few verses, in verse 17, Peter tells us who we're supposed to fear. He says, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So he's not saying to fear our masters in verse 18. He's saying, In the fear that you have for God, submit yourselves to those who have authority over you in the workplace. Because you fear God, obey your employers. So this is the command in the same sense that we saw in verse 13, as far as the government is concerned. We are to obey, respect, submit to those in government in the earlier verses. And in these verses, he says the same thing. We are to obey, respect, submit to those who work over us in our work environments. And the motivation is the same because we have a fear of God who has established that authority on earth over us and is using them for his good in his overall plan, both in our lives and in the plan for the world. So the command is basically the same as we saw with government. uh, Obey, submit, respect those who have authority over you in the workplace. And then he qualifies it. He says, um, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. So there's two kinds of masters that Peter defines here. First, he says, there's the good and gentle masters. And these two words that he gives, first of all, would refer to those kinds of employers who are kind, who are fair, who are reasonable. All of those words fit under this good and gentle, kind, fair, and reasonable. And these are the kind of masters that we would want to have, isn't it? The kind and good and gentle masters. Aristotle actually said this, that in ancient Greek terminology, this the words that Peter chose here to use, referred to one who was willing to forego his own rights, one who was content to take less than what was due him. Now, wouldn't you want to have an employer like that? He's content to forego his own rights for the good of his employees. He's willing to take less so that his employees can have more. Well, I wish that defined corporate America today, but we know it doesn't, okay? But that's the definition that Peter gives of a good master. In fact, the same words are used in Psalm 86.5 when it says that God is good and ready to forgive. Now, isn't that the kind of person we would like to have over us in our workplace? I mean, that would be our choice, right? 
But Peter also says there's another kind, too, that you have to submit to. The second one is the master who is froward or unjust. That would be the opposite. The KJV, or King James, uses the word froward. In the ESV, it uses the word unjust. And the New American Standard uses the word unreasonable. I think between those three words, all of them are good uh, uh, translations of this Greek word that means froward or unjust. But you get the idea. Actually, the Greek word is skolios. You might, if, you're, if you've been to the chiropractor, you might recognize the word scolio or scoliosis, which is a curvature of the spine. My sister had that. She had to be treated for that. But it's when your spine curves the wrong way and it causes pain and dysfunction in your body. That's the Greek word that Peter's using here to describe an unjust master. He's crooked. He, won't, he, he causes dysfunction. And so first, we have a good master, but Peter says it doesn't matter whether they're good and gentle or whether they're crooked and unjust. The command is the same for either one. We are to submit to those masters with all respect, fearing God, because God has put us in that place of submission under their authority. Now, someone asked me recently about whether our submission is due to the overall business or the government as a law is concerned, or whether it is to the people specifically that represent either that business or the government. And I think Peter, based on what he's given us in both of these, talking about people, not systems, but people, kings, governors, masters, I think then it applies to people. Now again, there is the, the, the line that we have to draw in the sand, that one exception, is when either the government or our employers ask us to do something that is unethical or violates a clear principle or clear command of God. And just like um, the, the Old Testament uh, saints did, they say it's better to obey God or to, than man. And then Peter said the same thing, it is better to obey God than man. And so that must be our response. Then we have a place where we can disobey either the government or our, um, our masters in our workplace. But, sorry, I just lost my place. Okay, so we have a, 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 pl a, a place where we are able to not submit if it violates God's law for us or if it got, violates God's principles. But when we do that, there probably will be consequences. We know that. We know that from looking at people who have practiced civil disobedience the right way. We, look, we, we know that probably from personal experience, some of us, from practicing what we would call ethical disobedience of our superiors because it violated God's principles. And you may have lost your job. You may have lost a raise or a promotion. You may have been demoted in your workplace or just singled out and ridiculed because you chose to do what was right rather than what your superiors told you. But actually, that's what Peter is addressing in this passage. He doesn't just say, submit yourselves to your workplace authorities, to your masters, whether they be good or bad, and then leave it hanging. He actually describes the consequences that will come because we do that. 
Look at verse 19. Peter says, For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief or sorrow. Why would you have to endure grief or sorrow in your workplace? Because you're being persecuted by those above you or those that work with you in some cases. He goes on and says, not just enduring grief, but suffering wrongly. That means being punished or persecuted unjustly for something that you did not do wrong. So this is the the situation where you are obeying God, you are doing what's right, you're trying to obey your superiors in your workplace, and yet they give you commands that do not uh, meet with God's approval, do not parallel with God's principles, and so you have to say, I'm sorry, I can't do that, and then there are consequences that come with that. And Peter says, therefore, you suffer grief and you suffer wrongly. He doesn't say stop submitting. He says keep submitting even when that happens. In other words, we obey and submit, fearing God, but it doesn't matter what the consequences may be. We always follow the Lord. Now, if we submit to our superiors and our fellow workers give us grief, then we submit to our superiors. If in submitting to our superiors, their superiors give us grief, or if in submitting to God, we can't submit to our superiors in specific things, we receive that persecution, we still, with the right attitude, endure it patiently. Okay, so he's telling us not just the submission, but when those consequences come, what should be our response? And this applies both to the workplace and to the government. Okay, and he says in verse 20, for what glory is it if you, when you are buffeted for your faults, shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. So Peter gives us two scenarios here. When we submit and do what we're supposed to, and we still suffer, take it patiently. Just endure it. Now, I understand somewhat of what Peter's talking about. I've had a couple of situations in my lifetime where I tried to do exactly what my superiors told me, and all I got was criticism. I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I did everything the way they wanted me to do it, and yet all I got back was, no, you're not doing it the right way. No, you're not doing it fast enough. No, this is bad. No, you're no good. Okay? And maybe some of us, have, uh, others have been in that situation as well. But Peter doesn't say when that happens, don't stand up for yourself and defend yourself and tell them where they're wrong and prove yourself to them. He says, endure it patiently. And endure it doesn't mean defend yourself. Endure it means stand there and take it. That's the proper response that we have in submission to our authority. You stand there and you take it. And the motivation for that is because we fear the Lord. Now, we're going to get to the example in just a minute, but we take that because we fear the Lord and we want the testimony of who we truly serve to be manifested in our lives and in our responses to those earthly authorities that we have as well. It's interesting, the word that Peter chooses here in verse 19, he says, it's thankworthy if you do this. Literally, that word means to find grace 
and he emphasizes that twice about finding grace or experiencing grace in this passage. Once at the beginning of verse 19, he says this is acceptable graciousness. The word is charis in the Greek, acceptable graciousness. And then in the end of verse 20, he literally uses the word acceptable, and he says this is grace that is acceptable to God when we stand there and take it, enduring it patiently. It's our, our submission in love for God that should be our motivation to submit to those over us. And our response when God chastises us is the same as when our earthly authorities chastise us. Even if they do it wrongly, we submit to it. We take it patiently. And Peter says that we will be willing and able to endure grief even when we're suffering wrongfully. Paul gives the same command in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. He says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. So he says, you're not just serving your masters. He says, you're serving the Lord. Your masters may not reward you accordingly, but God will. And so that's your motivation. We fear and love the Lord. And so our response should be that patient endurance rather than lashing out, fighting back, and defending ourselves. Peter defines exactly what he's talking about when he says to suffer wrongly in verse 20. And he asks this question, what glory or credit is it when you have to suffer for your own wrongdoing? He's saying it's not about being punished for your wrong actions, okay? That's not what Peter's talking about. There's two kinds of suffering. One is being chastised or suffering because we did wrong. It's just the consequences of our own wrong decisions and wrong actions. Peter says, what good is it? What glory is it or what credit is it if you suffer when you do the wrong thing? There's no credit in that. There's no glory in that. And he actually uses this word buffeted in the King James. It could mean beaten, literally. And one of the commentators said Peter may be referring to how slaves were treated by their masters when they did wrong. Many times, not only were they criticized and berated, but sometimes they were literally beaten with a hand or with a stick or with whatever the master could find at that point. And so he's not talking just about verbal abuse. He's talking about physically being beaten for wrongdoing. That brings no glory. But, he says, if when you do well you receive the same treatment, that is acceptable to God. You go, what? Wait, it's acceptable to God for us to suffer unjustly, for us to be literally beaten sometimes when we have done nothing wrong? Yes. If we endure it patiently. Yes, that is what Peter is saying. He's saying you don't fight back, you don't argue, you don't threaten, you don't um, try to defend yourself, you stand there and you take it with patience. Now, this isn't me. This isn't my opinion. This is what the Bible says. 
And it's the whole idea of submission according to God's plan for us. And it may not make sense to us from a human perspective because in our minds we're in the, mind, the mode of self-preservation, self-protection, self-advancement. And what, what does Jesus say? Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And so when we see this command by Peter that he says, you still submit to your superiors, you endure it patiently when you are literally beaten, even though you've done nothing wrong, this is acceptable to God. This is God's will for you. It is the word charis, acceptable grace. It is literally the grace of God at that point, as we're being buffeted, and wrongly suffering for nothing we did wrong, that God's grace shows through us the most. And Peter says, that is acceptable to God. When you suffer, even when you do right. Now, that's a huge contradiction to most of the attitude of today's workforce if the conditions aren't just right, if we don't get paid enough, if the, if the supervisor talks to me in a way that I don't appreciate or I'm not respected at work. That's the attitude of today's workforce. And unfortunately, it's the attitude of many Christians as well. I have to stand up for what I deserve because I'm a human being. Peter says, no, put that on the back burner. You submit yourself. Regardless of what the treatment is, you submit yourself. Now, you may say, well, pastor, today the world is different than the one that Peter lived in. And that may be true on the surface of things, but now let me tell you this. The Word of God is not different today than it was when Peter wrote it. The application is not that different today than when Peter wrote it. The attitude of submission that God requires is no different today than when Peter wrote this. And there's still good masters and bad masters in our world, just as there were in Peter's day. And so we can't say, well, this doesn't apply the way that Peter's talking about, because everything is basically the same for us as it was for Peter as a believer, submitting ourselves to God and submitting ourselves to the authorities that are over us in this world. So we can't argue that, well, this is a cultural thing. This is, you know, a time past. It doesn't apply to us. No, Peter is saying, and God is saying today, this is his word. And he's saying, this is what I expect my children to behave like in the face of unwarranted persecution. Now, if you still have questions about that and why we should take this seriously, then you got to go to verse 21, because here's the example. Verse 21 says, you do this, for even unto here, unto, here unto were you called. In other words, you were saved, and in that salvation, God has called you to suffer unjustly. That is his purpose for us. Now, many people don't want to hear that. But it is God's purpose, Peter says, for us to suffer unjustly unjustly even at the hands of our employers keep reading why because christ also suffered for us leaving us an example 
and we should follow in his steps. I can't argue with that. The example is Jesus Christ. But remember, even Jesus said that we would suffer. He says, if you follow me, things are not going to be easy. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, he says, he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You know what taking up your cross represents? Being unjustly persecuted. Because that's what the cross represented in Jesus' life. Did he deserve to go to the cross? Absolutely not. Did he deserve that punishment? Absolutely not. And so he says, you're being called to suffer unjustly to show God's grace in how you respond to that. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 9, Peter told his disciples, then they shall deliver you to be, up to to be afflicted. They shall kill you. You shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. That was before they got started. How would you like to hear that? Okay, I want you to follow me. And by the way, they're going to hate you. They're going to persecute you, and they're going to kill most of you. Are you ready to go? But that's what we've been called to. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Unjust suffering is what Christians have been called to. It's not just a happenstance an occasion that we may come in contact with, Jesus says it will happen because this is God's purpose for your life. And he has a purpose in everything. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, our, our author here, in chapter 4 he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his own body, arm yourselves with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. In other words, the more you realize the physical doesn't matter as much as you think it does, the less you'll be tempted to keep living in your own lusts. And we talked about that in the beginning of chapter 2 and in chapter 1. So suffering unjustly is God's plan for us as believers. And that's why Peter says in, verse, in 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, Beloved, think it not strange. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace? Did they deserve that? Well, from an earthly government perspective, yes, because they disobeyed the king. From God's perspective, did they deserve that? Absolutely not. Because they were obeying God rather than obeying man. And yet they suffered the torment of being thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, miraculously, God was with them. Literally, Christ was with them. And they were spared from death. But Peter says, don't be surprised about that fiery trial. Don't be surprised about that persecution and hatred. Don't be surprised when that unjust suffering comes into your life. It's not a strange thing. Jesus told, it, told us it would happen. In verse 13, he says, Instead, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. When we suffer unjustly, we share 
Christ's sufferings, and he says that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, through our suffering, the glory and grace of God shows through us if we take it patiently. Remember Paul's goal that he said in Philippians chapter 3? He said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. In other words, I want to suffer like Christ did so that I might be made conformable unto his death and be ready for the resurrection. That was his goal, to suffer like Christ did. He didn't look for it, but he welcomed it when it came, and he gave God the glory through it. Now, if Jesus is our example, and very quickly, I just want to finish the rest of these verses. If Jesus is our example, Peter gives us the description of what Jesus went through. Okay? And we read Isaiah 53 this morning. Peter is quoting Isaiah 53 and looking at many of the things we read this morning. Here is the example of the the suffering that we will go through. Look at Jesus. Now, first of all, we have to remember, and, and, and uh, Peter says this, Isaiah 53 says this, did Jesus commit sin? Did he deserve to be punished? And the answer is no. So he committed no sin. He never did anything wrong. And so that's the first point. So he didn't deserve any of the suffering that he endured. Number two, when he underwent that suffering, he never reviled against anyone who persecuted him, who mocked him, or who crucified him, never said anything against them at all. In fact, he never said anything against, uh, in defense of himself. He never claimed his own rights. He never argued for his case, and Peter says he never threatened any of those that abused him. And believe me, he could have threatened them, He could have called 10,000 angels, right? In a word, all of his persecutors could have been destroyed. And yet, not a word from him. He endured it patiently. He kept silent. And he went to the cross, an unjust death. He was mistreated. He was beaten. He was cursed. He was spit upon. He was flogged. And then he was crucified. Not because he sinned. Not because he did anything wrong. But because we sinned. And he never said anything otherwise. He endured it patiently. And Peter says it's through his suffering that we are able to be healed in salvation. We are allowed and and given the opportunity for salvation because Jesus suffered unjustly. That's the foundational truth that Peter's trying to make here. We learned all that in chapter 1. Here's the, the primary point of that is that Jesus suffered unjustly. So when we suffer unjustly in this life, what is our response to be? What does Jesus what does Peter say? End of verse 21 that we should follow in his steps. We are to be like Jesus. We are to respond like Jesus did. We are to submit to the authorities. 
even when they're wrong. We are to take patiently the wrongful suffering that we will endure because we are to walk in his steps. You know the old saying, you never truly understand a person until you walk a mile in their shoes? That's exactly what Peter's saying here. We need to walk in Jesus' shoes, to suffer the way Jesus suffered, so that we will truly understand what is really important in this life. And so that God's grace and glory can be manifest in us. God wants for us to understand Jesus so much that we might learn to live like him in going through the same kinds of experiences he went through. Now, none of us would go to God and say, okay, God, I'm ready. I want it the worst that you can give me. Right? But isn't that what Jesus did? Father, I'm ready to receive the worst that you can give me for the good of everybody else. And because Jesus suffered unjustly, then God's plan for us is to suffer unjustly in life so that we can learn to let the grace of God flow through us in the hardest circumstances that we could ever be put in. We give him glory through grace in patient endurance. Here's one of those circumstances. When we're treated unfairly, unjustly, buffeted, or even beaten, when we've done nothing wrong. Jesus was the perfect example of submission in the midst of an unjust circumstances, and we must walk in his steps. That's what Peter says. Now, to understand this idea of submission, I'm going to close with this. We know, and we have to understand this, that submission begins with the attitude of meekness, but meekness is not the same as weakness, okay? Meekness is not about being weak. In fact, our weakness is on display, not meekness, but our weakness is on display. When we put, up our, when we put ourselves first, when we stand up for ourselves, when we have to defend ourselves, we have to mock the other person because they're wrong and we're right, threaten other people, that's weakness. That's what uh, Paul calls the works of the flesh. Submission and meekness, not weakness, but meekness is living like Jesus did. Now, you can't say Jesus was weak. Jesus was the epitome of strength. He had all the power of God within him, literally. He could do whatever he wanted to do. And yet, the point is what he did do. He submitted. He reviled not again. He didn't argue. He didn't threaten. He took it patiently. He was not weak. That was strength under control. That's what meekness is, and that's what brings us to the attitude of submission. We have the power of God in us. And it is that power that enables us not to fight for ourselves, but to submit in in meekness. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, James says this, My brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience or endurance. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire lacking nothing. 
James gives us the conclusion of what Peter's talking about. He says, when you're mistreated, endure patiently. James puts it this way, count it all joy. Count it all joy when you're mistreated at work. Count it all joy when you're fired for not doing that unethical thing that your supervisor told you to do. Count it all joy when you're overlooked for promotion or a raise that you deserved and the person that didn't deserve it gets it. Count it all joy, Peter or James says. And let the grace of God rule in your hearts. Because it's the grace of God, as Peter tells us in chapter 5, verse 10, and it's the God of all grace who has called us to his eternal glory by Jesus Christ after we have suffered a little while in this life, that God of grace himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And that's the foundation of what Peter's command is. Submit yourselves to your masters, your workplace authorities whether they be good or bad, even when you suffer unjustly. Because that's what Jesus went through. And it's God's calling for us so that his grace can be shown through us. As I've mentioned in many of the messages we've had before this, I'm going to finish with this question. The world is watching. An unsaved world is watching in every circumstance that we come across. How is your response going to tell them and show them about the God that you say you serve? Here's one more example of how Peter says we can demonstrate God's grace in our lives through submitting to these earthly workplace authorities, regardless of what they do, regardless of what kind of people they are. God is made known. Let's pray. Father, thank you again that you've given us your word as instruction for us. And it is correction for us as well because many of us have had and have still maybe the wrong attitudes about people in authority over us. And Lord, you're methodically kind of kicking down the barriers that we've put in place that we use erroneously to support our own actions and our own attitudes. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn submission as you've taught us through the example of Jesus Christ. And even in this area of workplace relations, Lord, help us to respond the way that you want us to, mirroring the attitudes and actions of Jesus Christ so that others might see your grace through us. We give you the glory and praise now for what you've taught us. Just help us not to forget it as we go now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is, I have decided to follow.